Okay, I want to welcome you all to uh, Inner Pratt's City Lit Festival today. And my name is Carol Massini, and I'm a retired English professor from Stevenson University. And I'm so happy to be here with Thri Umrigar and Masha Hamilton to introduce their two new books, which are really, really, really exciting. Uh, let, me let me say a little bit about them first, and then they will start and give you a little uh, taste of what the two books are. When uh, Judy, she's gone, first told me I was going to be doing this, I said, what do they have in common? I don't understand what they have in common. And then I reread the books and read all about them and found lots of things that they have in common. First of all, they have both been writing since grammar school in little journals to find out about what they didn't understand about life. They have both written four novels. They both began in 2001, and they've all been critically acclaimed, not a dud among them. They have journalistic backgrounds um, and have been writing for two decades, magazine articles and newspaper articles mainly. Their themes usually stem from the uh, two cultural uh, belief systems bumping into each other, but it's not the simplistic kind of thing. Um, as a reader, um, you will learn something about your culture, even if you are not a part of either of the two cultural uh, sets that are backing into each other. Um, they have beautiful poetic language, the language of poets, and I'd love them to at one point talk about where the poetry came from, because I don't usually see it in journalism, <laughs> and it is beautiful language. Uh, and of their two new books, um, this 31 Hours by Masha Hamilton deals with the potential fear of a mother uh, that her son is in deep danger. And this one deals with how a family deals with the actual death of their son, both of them only children. Um, and that's a connection that I didn't make till this morning in the shower. <laughs> As I wasn't looking at the plot, I guess. Uh, Thridi Umrigar was born and raised in Bombay, came to Ohio State University when she was 21 years old to study journalism, eventually earning her Ph.D. in English. She's also written for the Washington Post and is a regular contributor to the, to the uh, Boston Globe as well as many other magazines. Um, she started her journalistic career writing for the Akron uh, Beacon Journal. Today, she's an associate professor at Case Western Reserve University in Ohio, and she lives in Cleveland. Um, and throughout, um, she's been writing her novels. And about a decade ago, she got a Neiman Fellowship to Harvard, and that gave her a chance to finish the first novel that was published. Maybe you had one sitting in a chair or something. But the first one that was published called Bombay Time. And it's about residents in Bombay who are dealing with each other with the city of Bombay, and also with their insider-outsider status as mostly Parsis in a Hindu culture. Her second novel was If Today Be Sweet, about a middle-aged, recently widowed woman um, in, in, from India who needs to decide whether to spend the rest of her life in India or come to suburban Ohio and live with her son and his family. Took a little detour with a very interesting memoir called uh, Little... Uh, first Darling of the Morning, uh, and then wrote The Space Between Us. Um, and that's when I came to know Thritti's writing. Uh, the Space Between Us deals with two women who have worked together for decades in the same house, the same kitchen, but they could never cover that space because of the class differences, one being a maid and one being the employer. 
um, and her newest one, The Weight of Heaven. Uh, she, uh, in 2009, got the Cleveland Arts Prize for Mid-Career uh, mid Achievement. She was a 208 finalist for the Penn Beyond Margins Award. And uh, so as soon as I say a few things about Masha, she will do some reading about From the Weight of Heaven, so you'll get to see just how exciting both of these books are. Masha Hamilton is an American journalist who's reported from Moscow. She worked for the NBC Mutual Radio. She's reported from the Middle East, where she was an AP correspondent. She's also reported from Afghanistan and from Kenya. She's a graduate of Brown University, and she teaches at many writing workshops throughout the country, like the Gotham Writers Workshop. She currently lives in Brooklyn. Um, she has a huge interest in worldwide literacy, which you see in some of her books, and she is active with the Camel Bookmobile and the Afghan Women Writers Pro um, Project. 2001, her first novel, uh, Staircase of a Thousand Stairs, won the Book Sense pick and the Barnes & Noble Young, great new young author pick. And it's about the conflicts of, um, between modern life um, and a, a traditional village life in the Middle East just before the war with Israel in 1967. The Distance Between Us, notice how close that is to 3D Space Between Us as a title, uh, deals with an American journalist who's trying to come up with some kind of a response to the violence she sees in the Middle East when it takes her lover. Um, that won a library journal, best, one of the best books of 2004. And then she wrote The Camel Mobile um, about an area in Kenyan where people are trying to bring books and literacy to far off Kenyan villages. And a very, very idealistic New York City uh, librarian has no clue when she goes there for her little adventure that her Western ideals are going to be conflicting with the ideals of the villagers at that time. Um, and she will be reading uh, from 30... Um, one hours and a little bit. Pretty. Want to start? Well, thank you all for being here. It's such a gorgeous day outside, at least occasionally, uh, that it's hard to compete with good weather uh, in this part of the country anyway. So <laughs> we are both, I'm sure, I can speak for Masha, we are both grateful that you took the time to come. I'm going to read you an excerpt from the new book, The Weight of Heaven. And uh, this is actually the prologue. And I want to read this to you because it will help you. It sets up, I think, quite quite speedily, uh, the plot of the novel. A few days after Benny's death, Ellie and Frank Benton broke into separate people. Although they didn't know it then, at that time all they could do was concentrate on getting through each bewildering day, fighting to suppress the ugly memories that burst to the surface like fish above water. On the day of the funeral, Frank urged himself to go up to Ellie and say something brave and consoling to her, something that would reassure her that he understood that he did not blame her for what had happened. But he was felled by a clear, sharp thought. He didn't know how. Without Benny, he had forgotten how to make his way home, how to make his marriage whole again. Benny had been dead for less than a week, and already his marriage felt like a book he had read in high school, and Ellie a character in it whose name he had forgotten. Something inexplicable happened in the days following Benny's death. It was as if a beautiful blue bowl, no, it was as if the world itself had fallen and broken into two halves. Try as he might, Frank couldn't help but feel towards Ellie how he imagined Adam had felt towards Eve after the fall. 
hostile and compassionate, sad and doomed and resentful, above all, lonely, above all, unable to regain that lost, broken thing. I'm just going to, in the interest of time, I'm just going to skip over a section and then pick up. And now they were two. Benny was gone. What was left behind was mockery, objects and memories that mocked their earlier smug happiness. Benny was gone, an airplane lost behind the clouds, but he left behind a trail of smoke a mile long. The tiny baseball glove, the Harry Potter books, the Mr. Bean videos, the Bart Simpson t-shirt, the fishing rod, the last Halloween costume. A tiny rosewood box with a few strands of his hair. A mug that read, Number One Mom. His school photo. Photos of the three of them at Disney World. The arts and crafts bungalow in Ann Arbor was positively shimmering with mockery. Even so, Frank didn't leap at the chance when his boss, Pete Timberlake, asked if, if he was interested in heading the new factory that the company had bought two years ago in Girbag, India. Four months after Benny's death, he was still concentrating on the business of putting one foot in front of the other, of making up reasons to get out of bed in the morning. He mumbled something to Pete about how much he appreciated the vote of confidence, but that it wasn't the right time in his life to relocate. But Ellie heard about the offer from the wife of another executive and saw in it what Frank couldn't, a chance to save her marriage, to start clean in a new place, to put the baseball glove and the size 4 Nike sneakers in storage, to not be slapped daily by the patter of feet not heard, by the sound of a high-pitched voice not squealing its exuberance over breakfast. And so Ellie broke the cardinal rule that she had always preached to her own clients, the one about not making any major decisions for a year after a life-altering event. Accept Pete's offer, she urged her husband. And Frank, too tired to argue, to think, let himself be guided by the faint light of hope he saw in his wife's eyes. India, he thought. He knew about the new, deregulated, globalized India that everyone was raving about, of course. The booming stock market, the billion-dollar acquisitions, the call centers, the manicured IT campuses. But he let himself dream of the old India, which he believed was the real country. India, he thought. Elephants, cows on the streets, snake charmers. Above all, he comforted himself with the thought of being in a country with a new moon, a new coastline, a new sky, of living in a house whose walls did not carry the telltale pencil marks of measuring a child's height, whose rooms did not echo with the sound of a boy's whoops of laughter, a country where there was no possibility of running into one of his son's teachers whose parks, rivers, lakes, stadiums, video parlors, movie theaters did not constantly taunt him, remind him to look at his own broken, empty hands. He went into Pete Timberlake's office on Monday morning and accepted his offer. And so, banished from their once Edenic life in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Frank and Ellie Benton traveled east until they arrived at the Shivaji International Airport in Bombay 
on a cool January morning in 2006. So that's the prologue. Thank you. Um, it's a great book, and I bet that 3D will tell us that it was very hard to write that difficult part of losing a kid, which is, you know, one of the worst sorts of tragedies that we can face. I, I also, this was a hard book for me to write, 31 Hours, maybe my hardest, and I actually left New York City and went to the Adirondacks for a month to get through the first draft of it. Um, it's a multi-character uh, story that takes place over 31 hours about a young man, 21 years old, idealistic, who believes his country is making politically bad choices and wants to make a change and thinks the way to do that might be an act of violence in the New York City subway. And it's about his mother who wakes up in the middle of the night worried that something is is gone wrong, but then thinking, well, he's 21, he's supposed to be independent, he's supposed to be on his own, and she doubts her intuition almost as soon as she has it. There are many other characters in the viewpoint who all come together around the subway itself, and I'm going to read you a very short section from one of those characters. Um, His name is Sonny Hurt. He is a panhandler in the subway, uh, one of my favorite characters. He's inspired by an actual panhandler I know on the F train who says Sonny's line, which is something like, If you ain't got it, I understand, because I ain't got it. But if you can spare a quarter, a dime, a nickel. And this is Sonny's line as well. And this little section um, is on the subway from Sonny. The train pulled in, and Sonny, the police officer, and the TSA employee all got on, each choosing a different car. Sonny's car held only one other person, a black transvestite with a bouffant wig. As the train began to move, he, looking very much like a she, rose and sauntered past Sonny, hips swaying, almost as if he were a model on a catwalk. He wore a long coat, which he kept open in the front to reveal a silky red dress that couldn't be keeping him warm. He was well padded. His curves looked authentic. He had nice eyes, too, Sonny saw. Only the black, high-laced tennis shoes seemed misplaced. He stopped about three feet away from Sonny, took hold of a high handrail, and flexed his shoulders. Two stops later, he turned around and headed headed Sonny's way again, studying him carefully. A couple got on and moved to the far end of the car. The transvestite slid into a seat opposite Sonny, staring openly now. Sonny sat easy, a non-committal expression on his face, knowing it was best to wait it out let the fellow finish whatever strutting was needed. The transvestite leaned forward and said, in the most feminine voice Sonny could imagine, you the best thing I seen in a while. Sonny chuckled, then that ain't no good for you. Name's Murray Lee, the man woman said. You looking for some warmth, some help passing this winter night? Don't be thinking so, Sonny said. Won't even charge you much for it, maybe just a cup of coffee afterward. There was a time, Sonny thought, time he might have said yes to the self-created, self-named person who inclined hopefully toward him. Might have said yes even though he knew that once they were alone together, a dingy padded bra would fall off to reveal a concave chest, and the legs, shaven but still a man's, would take him back some, and as for the equipment itself, it would be a long way from his dreams. He'd have said yes, despite the shortcomings, because people had those days when they felt pretty self-sufficient, 
And then they had those days when they were as needy as a babe. Whether they slept on a bed or a bench didn't matter. Everybody had days like that. Loneliness pulled at every part of you, and 60 seconds of adoration, even paid for, seemed the only chance you had at keeping the pieces from flying off in all directions. Not tonight, he said to Murley. Thank you, though. Oh, Murley said, a polite refusal. You're making my blood run hot. That's it. Thank you. Well, my next question says multiple narrators. <laughs> so apropos of this, uh, multiple narrators tell both of these, these stories. Um, 31 uh, Hours begins with the mother of the young man who thinks he can change um, Western materialism whatever you would call it, uh, through an act of terrorism. And, of course, we're in Jonas, the, the, the son, uh, Jonas's eyes also, and his girlfriend, and his girlfriend's sister, and his girlfriend's family, and Sonny Hurt's family. So one question is, why did you choose so many narrators? And, Thritty, yours is about the dissolution, or possible dissolution of a marriage, and yet you chose to take uh, at least one. I, I didn't mark them all, but at least one chapter through the standpoint of a character that we absolutely hate until... He gets to tell his own story, Prakash, who is a servant for the couple when they are in India. And some people have noted how different it is to actually have poor people giving their perspective instead of middle-class people giving their perspective about the poor people. Um, so why did you choose these different um, narrators? Was there a, a reason beyond my little reason? <laughs> you have eight narrators. Is that it? I don't Yes, know. I counted them. <laughs> okay. Um, I think that for me, it felt like this is, was a story, it felt like a risk telling the story anyway and asking the reader to come along with me and have empathy for a guy that was planning an act of violence on the subway and have empathy for his mother and have empathy for potential victims and everyone else. And it felt like the only way to talk about these 31 hours and make, make the pieces come together was to be able to hear it from different viewpoints and, and different, different voices. That's, I think that's a short answer. Well, I want to elaborate, actually, uh, on Marsha's answer and talk about her book, which I've read and absolutely adore. Um, and I, I just ask you to consider this, that maybe one of the reasons... 31 Hours really reads to me like a book about the city, about mm -hmm. New York. And, I mean, New York is nothing if not multiple narratives. I mean, that's sort of the fabric of New York. And I think you almost need it, consciously or subconsciously, this novel needed that many different voices to tell the story of a city. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. The city is definitely Good. one of I the characters. I taught you something about your own book. And the yeah. subway itself <laughs> is true. It's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, about my book, I have absolutely nothing to say. <laughs> no. um, well, uh, the book, you're right, Carol, in that the book is mostly told from the points of view of, of the couple themselves. So uh, Frank gets a chapter, Ellie gets a chapter, for the most part, that works out pretty evenly. And quite honestly, the first draft of the novel only had their two voices and their two perspectives. And then when I was revising it, I realized that Prakash, uh, who is, well, I'll have to tell you just a little bit about the book. So Frank and Ellie end up in India because Ellie sees it as a way of salvaging their marriage, the only thing she can think of. And she really hopes that being in a place they've never been together will draw them closer together. It doesn't work out that way. There are many reasons why it doesn't work out that way. One of the reasons it doesn't is Frank begins to really lose his heart to a nine-year-old boy, Ramesh, that, who happens to be the son 
of the couple who are their housekeepers in India. Uh, Ramesh reminds him increasingly uh, of his dead son, and he begins to think of him as a substitute in some ways for, for Benny. Um, and it's a train wreck, as you could imagine, because Ramesh has parents of his own, although they are poor, they are illiterate, you know, Frank clearly has way more resources that he can provide this young boy than they can. So Prakash is the father. And I decided at some point that we needed to hear from Prakash because the story increasingly becomes the story of this clash between two men, both crippled, emotionally crippled in their own ways, both flawed in their own ways, uh, but both of whom passionately love this child. And in their own ways begin competing for the affections of this young boy. Um, and it seemed very important to me on the rewrite that we hear from Prakash. I, I felt like it was mm -hmm. an ethical thing to do to, to have the reader understand where this guy was coming from. Uh, because Prakash is an alcoholic, he's an orphan, um, he's illiterate. It's very easy for a character like that to remain voiceless and underrepresented. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want Frank's view of Prakash, or Ellie's view of Prakash for that matter, to be the last word on the subject. I felt like he had earned the right to tell his own story. And I frankly yeah. think the book is better for it. I don't know. I didn't see the original, but it certainly worked. Yeah. Uh, and another question dealing with narration is how important um, it was for the two of you to realistically get into a man's mind, which sometimes doesn't work. Now, many, many people hate Frank. And Frank is the father, and as he gets more and more obsessed, it becomes more and more irrational. And they see Frank as just plain old crazy. And the same thing, surprisingly, is true of some people, their view of Jonas, the very idealistic young man. And they see him as a pawn. And, and, and the way some of the critics have talked about him is, I think, what you're trying to get away from. You're trying to get us to see him as a human being and see his humanity. So did you have trouble getting in the mind of two people that you knew many people, many readers were going to have trouble identifying with? Because I, I, for me, they both kept their humanity. Um, I, I don't think I had any problems writing Frank because he was a male character. That, the gender thing didn't seem to be an issue. Uh, but Frank's a complicated guy. Mm -hmm. and, and he does, he sort of rolls, because his grief is so profound and because it's, it's unresolved grief, you know, and I give him a brief backstory. Uh, Frank himself has lost his father, uh, not to death, but his father basically abandons Frank's family when Frank is 12 years old. So there's that, there's a whole sort of catalog of grief that's never been dealt with in Frank's life. And so he finds himself, as you said, becoming more and more irrational, and his obsession with this young boy really grows. And that's tricky. To write that as a character is tricky, because I've never thought of Frank as a bad guy or as a villain. Mm -hmm. I just see him as, as a tragic figure, really, you know? And I feel like he deserves our compassion, even if he doesn't deserve our forgiveness, perhaps. Um, so I did have to set it up, and I thought giving Frank that backstory, where, where you indicate that in some ways losing a child is about the worst thing that could have happened to somebody like that, not because, I mean, it's, it's the worst thing that can happen to just about anybody, but given his specific family history, uh, you know, because his own father had abandoned the family, it was crucially important to Frank to be a good father himself. 
And, and that's the very role uh, that's snatched away from him because of the death of his son. So, well, I guess that's it. Yeah, I- interesting. Your part about Prakash, you saw so many connections between Prakash and Frank that they were almost parallels. Yeah. I have to say about Thridi's book, I'll just say, I also, I felt Frank, I did not feel that he was, uh, I felt empathetic for him all the way through. I mean, even as he's kind of going crazy. Uh, the loss of a child is a sort of it event. It cannot anybody. Even, even g- given his backstory too, but even without the backstory. Right. You know, and he was certainly someone who cared very much about being a good father. That was a key role to repair damages of the past. And so I think that was a very important thing to know about him. And, and even as he was going crazy, you understood why. So for me, I have to say, I didn't view him as, as you know, just like, oh, not so. Mm-hmm. I really saw him as three-dimensional and saw his reactions and responses as completely authentic mm-hmm. to, to who he was. And that's certainly true of the way you've constructed Jonas, right? Jonas, for sure. I mean, for Jonas, I did do a lot of research into... Um, the kind of person who might be pulled into extremist groups. I interviewed people who'd been involved in extremist groups. Um, I went to a lot of websites. I did a lot of research. I'm pretty sure for a little while my phone was being bugged because of the various (laughs) places I was going and the questions I was asking and interviewing. I set off some sort of a... We live five years in Moscow, so I know that sound when your phone is bugged. uh, (laughs) But um, definitely it was important for me to make Jonas seem like he could be your nephew or the boy next door or, you know, there's a very troubled... I think there's a sort of parentheses in life uh, for many of, of, of us as Americans and it's when you are in that age group of 19, 20, 21 where you are certainly not a kid but you're also not really an adult mm-hmm. and as all these studies are coming out and telling us what we parents already really knew which is that the judgment part is not quite connected <laughs> until about 25 or 26. I mean for me Jonas in many ways represents this. He is idealistic. He wants to change the world. Isn't that a good thing in young people? And he wants to kill off ideas. He's not really thinking about the, the human loss of that. One of the reasons I was interested in writing this book is I was interested in answering for myself the question of what happens when somebody with the best intentions in the world, uh, you know, Ellie and Frank are fine people. Uh, they have, you know, they have decent politics. Uh, they are not like the stereotypical old colonialists. Uh, they they come to this new country really as as innocents abroad. You know, they they don't really know what they're going to find. They don't think they're so convulsed by grief that they don't really think of what their role in this new society is going to be. But but they come as Americans. They come as you know rich people in this village that's quite impoverished. So that that cultural and class divide is so strong uh, that you know, the law of unintended consequences mm-hmm. sort of g- springs into action almost immediately. And one of the reasons why Frank even feels like he has any authority or any right to Prakash, is pres- uh, to, to Ramesh, the boy, is precisely because of the class differences. Mm-hmm. You cannot imagine a situation really in the United States where he would be dealing with his peers where he would feel that sense of ownership towards the boy as he does in India. And it's precisely because the boy's parents are as poor as they are. Mm-hmm. So. And there certainly was a sense of unintended consequences in 31 hours as well because these eight um, 
characters whose perspective informs the novel, um, many of them are potential victims. And some of these potential victims are people that Jonas loves. And certainly that would never be part of his mind. Um, and the reader sees something that um, the, uh, the characters obviously don't see. Yeah. Uh, and also in, with yours, with the eight narrations, I noticed on second read how soon after the first sentence or in the first sentence, you let us know who was talking. And maybe that's why they're telling you not to do it, because it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> but they do sell. That's not, yeah, that's yeah. Not true. yeah. If, I mean, I if, if people don't get multi-character confused, multi-character viewpoints novels do sell. So. Yeah, sure. I mean, if it's badly done, people are confused and saying, "Who's this?" and "Where's my maps?" But but it's just harder to and, do. And I'll say one other thing, just from a technical point of view, maybe you don't want to do multiple voices unless you're Virginia Woolf um, in in the same chapter. But, yeah. but, but, you know, if you devote a chapter to each voice, and if the voices are distinctive enough, I think mm-hmm. you can pull it off and. You shouldn't worry about the marketplace when you're yeah. writing anyway. It's, it's the worst. It really is the worst thing you can do. You mentioned India. You mentioned the subway. And, you know, something about the importance of place. Uh, 31 Hours happens in New York City, and obviously it is laden with symbolism for freedom and liberals and intellectuals and all of that kind of thing. And yet there is this huge emphasis on the subway. Once you once the subway hits your mind, it's on almost every other page. One of the characters, Sonny Hurt, calls it his church. Um, uh, the mother is just is so happy to be at the subway because she's meeting people she wouldn't meet elsewhere, and sometimes that absolutely makes her day. So I'm wondering what else you were trying to do with the subway. And, and Thridi, yours was in India, and these two characters were going to India almost like, oh, go to India and you'll find your spiritual self. <laughs> And that certainly is part of the uh, stereotype of that. Uh, and then there's the stereotype of Ann Arbor as being the peaceful place on Earth. And you even used the word Eden when you talked about it at the beginning. So were you kind of playing with those two places as well? So I, I think the whole place thing was fascinating. Subway? Talk about the subway. Yeah. I will say that um, I love the New York subway personally. And I did consider the book to be sort of an edgy love poem to the subway. I think the, the role of spiritualism, which is in both novels, mm-hmm. the questions about, about spiritualism, for me it came to play in the subway. Absolutely, Sonny does call the subway his, not only his home, but his cathedral. And spiritualism is a question that's, that's an undercurrent in many of the other uh, characters and many of the other chapters. But the subway is a place where you meet people unexpectedly and you also have missed connections of five minutes where things could go entirely different. And that's one of the things that it was fun for me because it is one of the, of the driving forces of this 31 hours as we, mar- as we watch chapter by chapter the time wind down. It was something that was interesting for me to explore in the subway. At one point, Sonny thinks he sees his mother. I mean, sorry, Jonas thinks he sees his mother, but it's not her. And then at another point, um, Jonas's girlfriend thinks he see, she sees uh, Jonas's mother also, but it is her. And so there was a lot of fun to play with that whole New York energy, and especially as it, as, as it pertains to the subway. Yeah. No, I just, I mean, I completely agree with that. I just want to add that to me, sort of subways and public transportation mm-hmm. in general is democracy in action, mm-hmm. in motion, literally, you Absolutely. know? So, yeah. And, and that really comes through. It's one of my favorite things about your book is, is the whole subway sequence. So. There, is, there, is a, there's a scene in this book where Frank and Ellie go to Bombay to mm-hmm. attend a July 4th picnic thrown by the U.S. ambassador at, at the embassy there. Um, and 
Frank makes, he, he meets with the ambassador and he makes some inquiries about how difficult would it be to get a visa for Ramesh so that he could go back home with them for Christmas holidays. And um, the ambassador immediately sort of bristles when he says that and he just narrates this incident where um, this, you know, this young sort of spirituality-seeking couple uh, descends upon India and uh, there's, they, they just decide to scoop up this, this child, this, this street urchin child, and whisk it back with them to America with no regard for, you know, laws or the, whether the kid has parents. Or, and he says, you know, we got a lot of bad press over this, so he wants to make sure that Frank is sort of not following in their footsteps. And so there is, I mean, we saw it with those missionaries mm-hmm. in Haiti recently. There is that uneasy sense of appropriation sometimes that you see, you know. And... Um, I mean, when it, when it comes to a country like India that's poor and that has this reputation for spirituality and, you know, mm-hmm. I was in Brazil last year and person after person stopped me on the streets of Brazil wanting to talk about how spiritual every single Indian in India was. And <laughs> I just looked at them and I said, you know, most people I know are complete capitalists. They are <laughs> hell-bent on making as much money. And this one young man almost burst into tears. And he said to me, that is not true. You are not telling the truth. And I said, okay, I'm not telling the truth. So You used the word spirituality and so did Masha. And, and it's interesting. You can't write a book about um, you know, somebody who wants to kill for God without discussing religion. And religion is part of both books. I mean, um, Jonas's mother is an atheist, and yet she prays. A little 12-year-old girl wants to pray and yet doesn't know how. And one of the things she puts in her little arc of prayer objects is a metro card from the subway. I mean, it's just fascinating how everything gets together. Uh, Jonas, at one point, instead of calling the USA heaven, calls it Oz, which is sort of a made-up heaven that doesn't really exist. Um, and Sonny says that he believes in an afterlife because when he sees a picture of himself as a little boy, he knows that boy is dead, but that he still exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a lot about you know, religion. And when Jonas prays, he uses all five religions he's ever come into contact with. Um, and in uh, The Weight of Heaven, one of the, my favorite characters, Nandita, she is a, a journalist who's just right on on almost everything she says, uh, is an atheist. Um, and she is Indian. So I don't know what they would say about her spirituality. Um, Frank, when he decides that... God is um, not the Christian God, but an indifferent God of the sun, and the S-U-N is God in that indifference. He says he feels like God, like God with no sun, S-O-N. I mean, there's just lots of religious references in both. Edna Prakash's wife, I don't think I'm pronouncing his name right, but she is sort of exiled from her family for marrying somebody of the wrong religion. Uh, Lots of symbols in the book, and it's called The Weight of Heaven, um, which comes from that section about uh, the indifferent God as a son. Um, so uh, was there something you were trying to say about religion versus spirituality or whatever? It seems to go uh, yeah. run this, through both this, this is a tough question yeah. to answer because it ties in directly with why, why the title, Why Weight of Heaven? And I always find myself stuttering and stumbling a little bit trying to answer this, but... There is, as you mentioned, this section in the book, and that really, in a way, is a turning point uh, for for uh, Frank, where he sort of rethinks what he believes are old notions, outdated notions of God and religion and morality. Um, 
And, and he says that the signature of the universe is not, you know, a kind, compassionate, loving God, but indifference. It's, it's random. Um, and because he begins to believe that, he can then go on to do what he does. <clears throat> and so when I was thinking of the weight of heaven, I was thinking of, you know, to lead a good moral life, regardless of what religion you subscribe to or don't subscribe to, um, in a sense, is hard. It's a burden of sorts, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's much easier to, I suppose, say, you know, I don't care about anybody else and, you know, I'm just watching out for myself. The way most of us, I think, try and live our lives with, with following some guidelines, some rules of morality, is tough. And there is a kind of weight of heaven that, that we impose on ourselves because we, societies wouldn't function if we didn't, if we didn't subscribe to that philosophy. Like I said, I'm botching it up. But, <laughs> but that's how I was thinking of the weight of heaven, as, as duty, as an obligation, uh, as something that keeps civilization going. And I think there was no way to avoid that topic of, of heaven and religion when you're dealing authentically with someone who's lost a son, because certainly those questions do come to fore at that moment, and there has to be, a, you know, Frank has to question and come up with a new model for how he understands the world at that moment. For me, in, in dealing with a Jonas who is, um, who is preparing himself for this possible act of violence 31 hours from when the book begins, uh, the natural inclination and understanding that we have of someone who is involved with an act of terrorism is that they're a religious fanatic. But I really wanted to create an American uh, who would not fall into that category he's spiritually seeking. He's more of a questioner and a follower. And I also was really interested in exploring um, kind of the question you mentioned, which is what happens to us when we are not raised in the traditional religious ways where we have absolute answers given to us and boundaries, but we're raised in a spiritual tradition, but without those answers. And at one point, Jonas's mother says to her ex-husband, his father, did we make a mistake not to raise him within a church where he would have the answers? And, and Jonas's father, who's Jewish, by the way, um, says, you know, no, of course, we, what we did was right. We, we taught him to think, you know. And she said, but maybe that wasn't the right thing for him. Maybe he really needed to have those answers. So that was something that I wanted to really explore. And in fact, as you say, Jonas does, um, in his last 31 hours, make use of, of religious rituals from a variety of traditions as he's trying to find his, his own way and his own answer. In this particular uh, 31 hours. I did go to the Adirondacks. I had a little room in an artist colony overlooking a very calm, non-judgmental lake. Mm -hmm. And I, I poured through the first draft over 30 days um, very intensively, which I think ended up contributing to the driving um, sort of mood of, the, of this particular novel itself. I did have, you know, a good year and a half of revision after that, but the, but the thrust um, was that way. But it I really think it depends, for me at least, on, on the, the piece of work. I think that's about right. I think each book sort of speaks differently. Um, uh, the book that I'm working on right now, I've spent more time revising it than I've done with any of my novels so far. Um, some of them, um, you know, saw light of day in pretty much the same form as the first draft, with some tinkering, of course. I mean, don't trust a writer who says, you know, everything that drops out of their 
fingers is wisdom and that nothing ever gets changed on rewrites. That's just not possible. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be that way, frankly. Um, but uh, there's nothing like that heady rush of a good first draft that's done in a condensed amount of time. And there's a lot to be said for that. Have either of you ever written poetry? Uh, because, uh, you know, I'm thinking of the description of the subway and the description of Bombay uh, and comparing it to how you said as a child poverty upset you so much and it upset Ramesh because people were even more poor than he was. Right. Um, but it was the, uh, the, um, the total of, of all of those images that, that did that. Really, really beautiful. She's talking about my novel called If Today Be Sweet. And it's, it's an interesting question because the character of that novel is a 65-year-old woman recently widowed who comes to the United States. I don't have very much in common with her. I mean, she's much older than I am, and um, you know, her life trajectory is quite different than what brought me to this country. But if there's a character in that book that I, I could relate to, it's her son, you know, who's lived in Ohio for a long time, who's built a very successful life uh, for himself in the United States, and who came in pretty much the same manner in which I did, which was as a young undergrad, uh, as a young graduate student, who then, you know, stayed on. Um, so there's not all that much on the main character that I have sort of drawn on from my own life. But, you know, being an immigrant myself, I'm certainly familiar with the issues. And one of the things that was very important for me to say in that particular book, and remember I wrote this book about three, four, two, three, two, three, four years ago, and this was when, uh, in the last years of the Bush administration, the whole issue of immigration reform had just gotten, sort of people were talking about it. And I was growing increasingly dismayed at, at the kind of rhetoric that I was reading about in the media, you know, what the politicians were saying. I mean, people were actually referring to, you know, Mexicans and others who were crossing the border illegally as them illegals. And I just thought, I don't care what your politics are. You know, these are human beings. So one of the things I wanted to do in that book was really convey how utterly heart-wrenching the decision to immigrate to another place truly is. Uh, I can't even begin to imagine how desperate it must be for people who come here because they're just trying to escape poverty and repression and all those things. That was not true in my instance. I had a perfectly decent middle-class existence in India. Um, I came for other reasons. Um, and yet I can tell you that it was the single hardest choice that I have had to make in my life up to this point. Uh, and I, I gave the main character, Temina, every possible privilege. She comes to this country educated, speaking fluent English, you know, uh, with money, uh, and yet it's heartbreakingly hard for her to decide which country to call home the rest of her life. So I was thinking as Thridi was speaking because we have one of our writers who is a 40-something-year-old woman. She's in Afghanistan. She lived in Holland before. She talks about how, how much she wanted to return to Afghanistan even with its many, many, many problems. It's still her home. That made me think of that. The Afghan Women's Writing Project I started in May of 2009. I've been a few times to Afghanistan. It was uh, intended to give a voice to Afghan women... Um, and it really began from an execution that I saw in uh, 1999 of a woman named Zarmina, an Afghan woman. And you can see it on YouTube. It, it ran on the AP wire. 
um, who was killed for murdering her husband, but we knew very little of her story. And this helped me understand that Afghan women were not having an opportunity to, to speak, that we only really heard their voices through um, men and the media at the best. Um, so the Afghan Women's Writing Project is online. Uh, you can read their work. These women are working in three um, workshops online with American women, novelists, poets, uh, screenwriters, journalists, uh, essayists and memoirs who, who do four-week rotations for free with these women and prompt them and, and work with them to bring out their voices. Um, and then they... they they write their stories. You can see the progress. If you look back to May when they started, they tell about, um, they tell about everything from being uh, refugees in Pakistan or elsewhere to living in ha Taliban times to going to secret schools during the Taliban periods to poetry and threats in their lives. We mostly run the pieces out on first names only for security reasons. In a couple cases, we've had to run them out anonymously because the security risks were so great. Um, we're also collecting money to send each of them laptops, and then we hope to open Afghanistan's first women's-only Internet cafe so that they can continue to have a voice, even if their country, as, as it has over the last several years, continues to become more conservative again, and there is a threat that rights for them could become curtailed again. Right, AWWproject.org is the site. Thank you, Carol. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.